Well, today, as we look at a passage of Scripture, we're going to look at how this passage of Scripture asks one question of us. And that question is this. Are my priorities well on mission in line with the priorities of Jesus and his apostles? Are my priorities while on mission in line with the priorities of Jesus and his apostles? And I think this is really important, right? Because for you and for me, as we stop and think about following Jesus, we really want to make sure that we're following Jesus in everything that he's doing, right? Everything that he's called us into, right? Not just this part of it and that part that's uncomfortable we stay away from. We want to make sure that what he cared about most that we also care about most as well. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3. Uh, I'm also going to have it up for you on the screen so you can follow along in that way. Acts chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there to Acts chapter 3, let me just catch you up on the story of God and where we've come so far. Now, the Bible has two testaments or two covenants, right? And so we start off uh, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, where the people of God, ever since the very beginning, were trapped in brokenness and in desperate situations, a lot of them kind of of their own making, and, and they were desperate for a Savior. They were desperate for a Redeemer. They were desperate for a Rescuer, right? And uh, we see that throughout the Old Testament playing out in many different ways. And then we get to the beginning of the New Testament, right? In an amazing fashion, Jesus, the very Son of God, comes to earth, and he's born of a virgin, and he lives a perfect life. And then he announces himself, right, as, as the Messiah who's finally come, but he's rejected by most, accepted by some. And then in an act of generous justice, our Savior dies on the cross in our place for our sins, and he offers us freedom from condemnation. But our Savior doesn't just stay dead, right? After the third day, we see that God the Father resurrects him, right? And as he's resurrected, as he's raised to life, all of a sudden he starts going around and visiting different people, and he appears to hundreds of people at one time. And then at the conclusion of kind of this, this reunion tour of sorts, what does Jesus do? But he grabs his disciples and, and he calls them to himself and he says, come meet me. And then, and then he commissions them with this great commission to make disciples and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But he says, wait, right? He says, wait, in order to do this great big mission, you know what you're going to need. You're going to need the power to do the great big mission. How many people know that in order to do all that God calls you to, you need his power? Amen? And so he says, go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And they did. Just like Jesus had told them to, they went and obeyed. And just like Jesus said at Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit did come. And in an unbelievable way, we saw the reversal of the curse of Babel. And we saw the reversal of Mount Sinai, right? Now, with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of God's people, suddenly they were no longer separated by tongue or tribe. But they were united. Now, with the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside God's people, suddenly they were no longer separated from the presence of God. But he rested upon them and within each one of them who were called according to his purpose. And coming out of this amazing moment, do you remember what Peter did? Peter stood up 
And he preached to thousands. And all of a sudden, thousands were baptized. And we saw the birth of the first church. It was amazing, right? And then we saw at the end of Acts chapter 2, we saw what the church was devoted to. Kind of what they really valued. And why do I tell you all of that backstory? Because all of that leads us to Acts chapter 3, our passage for today. Where for the first time, you and I get a glimpse at what it looks like for disciples of Jesus to live an ordinary life on mission. Amen? Amen. So let's go ahead and take a look at Acts chapter 3, and let's look at how these disciples live on mission as Christ's witness. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with his fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know that was a lot, so thanks, thanks for sticking with me. 
But let's set the scene here, right? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now the ninth hour means 3 o'clock, right? Back in those days, it was very customary for Jewish people to pray three times a day. They would pray in the morning. As soon as the sun went up, they would pray at 3 o'clock, and then they would pray at sunset. And the words going up here are very literal because where the, the place of prayer was and that area where the temple was, uh, where the beautiful gate was, was on an incline. You literally had to walk up a hill to get there. So it's very literal. They were, in an ele- they were going to an elevated part of the city. And so you can ima- imagine, right, Peter and John, they are walking up a dusty pathway up to where they want to go at the ninth hour at three o'clock at the hour of prayer. The church, they're not just on a walk. They aren't just on a walk, and they're not being, just being syncretistic. Now, have you heard that term before, syncretistic? If you've heard that term before, uh, then you know that what it means is when somebody places their faith in, in one religion, and yet they're coming out of something else, and instead of just going full in with that one religion, they still mix in the other one, right? And we see this happen with, with, Christi- with people who are coming into Christianity a lot, right? They might really believe in Jesus, but they also are really tied to what they used to know. When I was growing up in Africa, you would see this with, with different people who would, be, uh, would grow up in a, in a culture where they constantly would visit the witch doctor, and then they got saved and became Christians, and, and they would go to church, but they would also go and consult the witch doctor. That's being syncretistic, right? That's mixing the two faiths. Or here in the United States, sometimes it might be that you're like, you got saved, but hey, my grandma and I used to always talk about what's my horoscope, and so you still consult your horoscope, right? Being syncretistic is something that happens all across the world in different cultures, and it always has to do with when we're trying to figure out what is this new place of faith for us? What is this new place where we're going to step into? Are we going to step in all the way or are we going to mix? So you might sit here and say, okay, Peter and John are going out to, to pray. They're just going back to their normal Jewish roots. They're just being syncretistic. They're, they're still living under the law, but that's not what ha- what's happening here. Look at what the text says and look at what it doesn't say. Again, it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. At the hour of prayer. It doesn't say to pray. It says, at the hour of prayer. Now, why is this important? What does this show you and me? But it shows you and me that they were being intentional, right? They were being strategic. They were on mission. They were looking for a place where they knew there were going to be a lot of Jewish people, right? And they they were looking for an opportunity within Jerusalem to go and be Christ's witnesses. Because remember, what did Jesus tell his people to do when he told them to be his witnesses? First, In Jerusalem, right? And then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so they're they're being obedient. They're looking for a place in Jerusalem where there's a lot of Jewish people, and they're going there on mission. They're being strategic. And we see the same strategy happen throughout this stage of the book of Acts. They're regularly going to places of prayer or to synagogues to try to engage people with the good news. They 
are on mission. Now, a possible application for you and for me as we stop and think about this and look at what the apostles are doing is this. Do you and I strategically look for places where we might also share the good news, where we might also be able to communicate the gospel? You know, when I was church planting in Providence, Rhode Island, um, I had these things, called, these things called proclamation points. When you first start church planting, you're starting from scratch. And so if you're not committed to evangelistically making disciples, then your church is not going to grow. And so I was committed to it because I wanted to see a church birthed in the inner city in Providence. And so I had these things called proclamation points, places in the community where I would commit and say, okay, I'm going to go there for an hour each week, and I'm just going to be present there, and I'm going to invite God to open up doors so that I might be able to communicate the gospel. And so I went to this place uh, right on Cranston Street in South Providence, this place uh, that was a laundromat, uh, Lynn's Laundromat. And, uh, and I, I didn't need to go and do laundry there because I had my own laundry set at home, but I packed a bag of gym clothes, and I grabbed a commentary, and I grabbed my Bible so I could prepare for my sermon later on that week, and I would sit there, and I would do my laundry, and I would pray. And you know what? Without fail, I would never get any work done on my sermon. You know why? Because people would always come up and talk to me and ask me about myself. Sometimes they would ask me about this big book that I was holding, and what, what is this thing that you're reading? And other times, because I was in South Providence, where 6% of the population looked like me, like a, a Caucasian Anglo, they would say, what are you doing here, right? And sometimes I would get the, the question marks of whether or not I was an undercover, undercover cop. And I said, I got the state trooper look, so I get it. I understand. But without fail, people would ask me, and I'd have great conversations about the gospel. And then the second proclamation point for me was this barber shop, Jose's barber shop, this Dominican barber shop. Now, if you've never been to a Dominican barber shop, well, get ready because it's not a 30-minute in and out. It was a two, three-hour you know, appointment each time. And, and so I learned about that, how that was a custom there, that when you go to the barbershop, you are committed, right? And I learned about a lineup. I had never heard about a lineup before. I learned about how you take a straight edge, and you, it was, my hair never looked so good, right? But I had lots of time to talk to Jose and lots of time to talk to so many other people in the barbershop because God would open doors as we'd sit around and just life would happen and be able to share the gospel, communicate the gospel. And so we see, right, that this is what the apostles are doing. This is their strategy. Could we also incorporate that into our lives? They are on mission. They are looking for opportunities to announce the good news. And then suddenly, what does Luke do? But Luke introduces us to an amazing new character, right? Look at verse 2. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, if you've ever traveled to developing nations, this is something that's a regular practice. You see someone who is lame or handicapped, and they're always being brought to a street corner or to a crossroads or to a gate so that they might through just survival, be able to provide for themselves, right? To have enough to eat for that day, but also so that they might be able to get something to then contribute back to the family. This is just very regular, very customary. And so this is what this person is doing. Now, furthermore, back in those times, the people in the temple, the priests in the temple would tell the people that if you give to the poor, if you give alms, then you're actually gonna earn more righteousness. You're gonna get more credit with God. And so and so you, you should give. And so people knew that. And so they would put themselves on pathways where people would be going to the temple so that people might give, hoping that God would be more happy with who they were. Now, we 
from the New Testament's teaching, right? That that's not how it works, right? You and I can never be any more loved by God than we are already now, right? Amen? He already delights in you and is pleased by you because of Jesus, not because of anything you've done. And so it doesn't matter how much you give to the church or how much you give to the desperate in your community, Jesus still loves you the same. And yet, because of how much Jesus loves us, because of how generous he's been with us, we should get excited about pouring out our resources into the church so the kingdom might be expanded. We should get excited about giving to those who are in desperate situations, not because it's going to get us anything, but because of what he's already done for us. Amen? Amen. We are stewards of God's resources. Now, what's especially important for us to recognize here is that Peter and John are excited to go and proclaim the gospel and they're going up to this gathering point and they have in their minds the type of people that they're expecting to see, right? You can imagine this. Maybe some of you have done street evangelism before or been out on a mission trip or, or gone and done some missionary work, right? You've got in your mind the types of people you're gonna be meeting and so they're thinking, okay, we're going to the place of prayer. We're gonna meet all those good Jewish boys that I grew up with and went to Hebrew school with, and we're probably going to meet this group of ladies because they're always there. And so they're rehearsing in their minds, right, the things they're going to say. They're rehearsing their points. They're like, okay, remember, God created the world, right? And then we fell into sin. And they're going through that whole thing probably in their minds. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something gets changed. All of a sudden, as they're walking to the temple, we see that right before them, a desperate man who was trapped in poverty is being carried and then suddenly laid at their feet. It's as though God really wants them to understand, before you get to any of that, prioritize this, right? We see that this is someone who's trapped in poverty, someone who's in a desperate situation, and this is no accident. I don't know about you, but I believe in the sovereignty of God. You believe in the sovereignty of God, right? God is in control of everything. There's not one thing that happens that's by accident, right? That God doesn't know about and goes, whoops, uh, okay, I guess I'll have to deal with that now. This is not an accident. This was intentional. God is saying, as you're on mission, as you're, as you're strategically trying to serve me, care for this person first. Care for this person that I'm literally bringing in your path right now. This person trapped in poverty, trapped in a desperate situation, trapped in brokenness. Now, this should come as no surprise to you or me that God cares about those who are trapped in desperate and vulnerable situations, right? Because this has always been who God has told us who he is. This has always been what God has told us who he is, right? And what he cares about. If we, if we even stop and look at Jesus and Jesus' words, look at Luke chapter 4 as he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and, and sits before the synagogue and then reads it to before the synagogue. He declares to us his mission statement, right? Look at Isaiah or Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 17. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, to follow Jesus means to proclaim good news to the poor, both those who are spiritually poor and those who are physically poor. You see, we get in trouble when we lean one way or the other. 
But God intends for you to care about those who are spiritually poor, which is all of us, but also to look out at those who are actually in, in physical conditions that are desperate and to reach out and care for them too. That is part of your responsibility. That is part of my responsibility. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. More than that, that is a priority for Jesus and should be a priority for you and me when we're on mission. Is this what we should always be looking out to care for those who are poor, who are desperate, who are vulnerable. And if that's you here in the room today, then you need to know that God sees you and he knows you and he values you so much that it is an urgent priority that he communicates to his people that you, that his people ought to run towards you. Man, if you ever want to know if God treasures you, even if you're in a desperate situation, the word of God tells you that he does. And he has a place for you in heaven that will be glorious, that we will all share together. Now, if you're not convinced of this interpretation, let's just take a look at what the Apostle Paul told us when he had his missionary band together and he was stopping and he was remembering what it was like when he first got sent out. What did those early Jerusalem leaders tell him as he and his first missionary band got sent out to plant churches? Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You see, those in poverty are a priority to Jesus. They're a priority for the early church. And we have to ask ourselves, are they a priority for us? Now, as you consider your lives, if the answer to the question here is, I don't know how much I'm involved in reaching out to the desperate, to the vulnerable, to those trapped in poverty, then we are challenged here to wonder if we are living on mission fully as Jesus desires, right? If we're not engaging and caring for the poor and the vulnerable, are we doing what Christ calls us to? And so Luke, who highlights Christ's heart for the poor here throughout the gospel and throughout the book of Acts is clear. And through this divine encounter with this lame beggar being literally placed, carried in place right before Peter and John, that God cares about this and they should care about it too. Now what happens next, right, at the gate called beautiful is something spectacular, right? A man who presents as anything but beautiful is cared for in a manner that radiates the beauty of God. And so today, with the rest of our time, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at how these apostles cared for this individual. And I want us to ask, as we look at specifically how they cared for this individual in ways that they saw Jesus do it, what might we learn as we try to follow their example as they follow the example of Christ? And so the first thing that we notice as we look at how they cared for this man is that the apostles treat the man with dignity. They treat the man with dignity. Now this man was sitting down in the dust on the road. His head was down, right? And he had just asked Peter and John for charity. And our text tells us that instead of walking right past him, right? Instead of ignoring the man, instead of judging the man, what does our text tell us that they, that they did? It tells us, look at verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him as did John. Now, Perhaps you've been in a situation like this where someone's begging, and what's the first thing that you and I tend to do, if we're honest, right? We look down, we look past them, or we look at our phone. We look down, we look past them, or we look at our phone, right? And what are we doing in that moment? But we're treating this person like they don't matter, right? 
Each time we do this, we are making a value pronouncement uh, that's received clearly by that person. You are not worthy of my time, not even a glance, right? The comedian Jerry Seinfeld, he used to, uh, you know, tell jokes and they would be on CDs. Anybody know what a CD is anymore? CDs, right? So I used to listen to Jerry Seinfeld's comedy on CD. And some of you actually would watch him on TV. Anybody remember Seinfeld on TV? Uh, And so Jerry Seinfeld had this routine where he would talk about what it was like to fly on an airplane. Now, some of you may remember this. Uh, There's always been a division between first class and sometimes business class and second class. But for a long time, it was first class and then just everything else, right? And and in the old days, you used to have a little curtain that would go across and separate first class and and the rest of it. Sometimes you still see that. Well, Jerry Seinfeld talks about before he became famous, he used to sit back and coach and and he would peer into first class and he would see all the people there as they're getting the the big seats and and they're getting served the nice drinks and and the mints that are on the pillow and, and he would get a glimpse and he could almost taste it and he'd be like, this is amazing. And then the stewardess would come over. The stewardess would grab the curtain. And look at Jerry and go, shh. And it was almost as if she was saying, well, if you just tried a little harder in life, this could have been you. Church, how many many times do we do that when it comes to people who are trapped in desperate situations? How many times do we look at them and we say the same things in our minds? Well, you're here because you deserve it. You didn't work hard enough. You, you deserve what you got. You're, you're probably lazy. And so as a result, you're not worth my time. But when we take this perspective, you know what we're doing? We are neglecting some very important realities. We are neglecting the fact that we don't know the whole story. And we don't know the truth of what that person is battling. We are, we are failing to live in the way that Paul told us to, to imitate Jesus and in humility count others as more significant than ourselves, Philippians 2. And finally, when we look past people in desperate situations, we are failing to acknowledge the reality that there go I, but, by the gra- but for the grace of God, Right? What if you and I had a different upbringing? What if you and I had an experience with trauma that spiraled out of control? What if you and I grew up in this place or, or in that place? What if you and I had a parent, had this parent instead of the one we had? What if you and I had gotten hooked on a substance from a very young age? We don't know. The list goes on, right? It's only God's grace that you and I might find ourselves in a different situation. But instead of judging the man, What do Peter and John do? But they treat him with dignity by directing their gaze at him. But they don't just direct their gaze at him, right? What else do they do? But they invite the man to look at them, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in this type of situation, right, uh, where you've seen this type of thing, but people's heads are down in these types of situations, and they have the the, the cassette tape is, is in, they press play, and in, they're just on repeat. They're saying the same thing over and over. Would you give to the poor? You got any spare change? Could you help a brother out? Could you help a sister? Right? They ju- it's on repeat. They're just saying the same thing. Their head is down. They're discouraged. They're ashamed. Their eyes are sunken down in shame. They're just looking for some generosity. And what do we see here? But Peter and John don't just look at them and see that happening, but they say, look at us. Look at us. Now, why is that important? How many people know that when you make eye contact with somebody, that is something that's powerful, right? 
That's, that's something that's very important because when we make eye contact with somebody, what are we doing? But we are showing, we, showing them that we value them. We are showing them that we see them, right? That they are known and seen. How many people want to be seen in your life today? I know that I do. I want to know that I matter, right? And this eye contact is communicating that. You know, my daughter, Michaela, she wakes up with her hair on fire and is moving a million miles a minute from the moment her head gets off the pillow. And so like any good parent, I try to get her to the playground as much as possible. And so I get her to the playground so she can run around and do all kinds of stuff. And I don't know if there are any parents out there in the room uh, today, but when you get your kid to the playground, you know, uh, they want you to watch every slide you go down. And they want you to see every, every ladder that they climb and all the monkey bars and they want you to see it all but but sometimes it gets a little boring right parents if I'm being honest right and so so for me it's getting a little boring and so I sat down on a bench I pulled out my phone and I was like you know I'm gonna get some work done and so I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe handle this insurance form that I gotta fill out don't ever fill out an insurance form on your cell phone anybody right like it is so hard it glitches like it's just not made for it right so I'm really struggling I'm having a hard time trying to fill out the insurance form on my phone and what I hear in the background but my daughter Michaela shouting out daddy see me daddy see me I, I see you Michaela you're doing great daddy see me oh yeah what a great slide dad I'm on the monkey bars <laughs> yeah you're doing great Michaela right and then my daughter, in typical fashion, because of her personality, runs over to me, grabs me by the face, and says, Dad, look at me. She's a strong young woman. That's great. I love it. Now, what is she saying to me in that moment? But she's saying, I want to know that I'm more important than your phone. Right? When you see people made in God's image right there, what are you communicating about their importance if you won't even look at them, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, do we treat people with dignity just like Peter and John are treating this man with dignity by not just looking at him, but inviting him to look back at them? Because you see, church, this is it. We need to realize that there is a value exchange that happens there, and that value exchange should happen with everybody. You know why? Because of the Imago Dei, because we are all made in the image of God, and so we are all worthy of respect and being seen and being known and being treated in that way. You know, the reformer John Calvin, he makes the point that because of the unity that we all have in being made in the image of God, when one of us is suffering, it should cause all of us to weep along with our creator at the brokenness that we're seeing. But Calvin doesn't just stop there. He says, because of the work of the Spirit in you to restore you as a broken and warped image of God to newness, to, to a newness of, uh, uh, of beauty that you and I should also be engaged in the same thing. Because we're made in the image of God, let us work like God in the sense of let us work for restoration. And not just appreciate that we're all made in the image of God, but work to see broken and warped images renewed and made new. Because that's a picture of the kingdom, and that's a picture of what our king does. Amen? Peter and John invite the man to look back at them, and they were declaring, you are made by God and you are valuable. They are respecting the man and they're respecting God by making eye contact with the lame beggar. But even more radical than making eye contact, we see that the apostles treat the man with dignity by reaching down and touching him. 
by reaching down and touching him. Look at verse 7. And he took him up by the right hand and he raised him up. Now, back in those days, it would have been ceremonially unclean for anyone in Peter and John's position to reach down and touch someone in that type of position, right? In fact, people in that condition, the people who had been lame from birth, they would have never been allowed to ever come into the presence of God in the temple. They would have never been given access to the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Right? That was the barrier that was, that was here that presented itself. But Peter and John... In, an, in the upside-down way of the kingdom, they reach out and they cross all the barriers and they touch the lame beggar just like they've seen Jesus do in a world where this man has probably never received a handshake, probably never been hugged or held. He's treated like he's truly human for the first time in a long time. He's touched. Do you know what the power of touch is? The power of touch is so important. The New Yorker wrote an article about this and said this in an article in March of 2015. Touch is the first of the senses to develop in the human infant, and it remains perhaps the most emotionally central throughout our lives. The right kind of touch, church, eases stress. It promotes safety. It allows for emotional healing. That's why in hospitals, it's not uncommon when there's a baby who doesn't have someone to hold them that other people will come in and hold them and caress the child because it's that crucial to their development. Touch is so important. You know, the other day I was on my way to, to work, right? And so I take the commuter rail in from West Roxbury. And so I got down to South Station. I got my headphones in. I got my half-eaten granola bar. And I'm speed walking down to the red line because I got to get the red line to get to my next appointment. And you know what I see is I'm speed walking, going on my way, going really fast to where I got to be. I see a woman trapped in homelessness who's in the corner with all of her bags around her. And I see her out of the corner of my eye, but that's not all I see. You know what I see? I see a young woman knelt down holding her hands and praying with her. But I was too busy. All I could do was extend a hand and keep going and pray as I walked. But I became more and more convicted as I went. What if my punctuality has become more important than people? What if, church? What if you, like me, were to invite God to help us build margin in for ministry? What if, just like we build in savings for those moments when we need it, what if we built in margin in our lives that we might be able to minister to those who are most desperate in our, in our society? What could God do? You see, this young woman at South Station, just like Peter and John, understood the power of touch and treated the one that she was praying for with compassionate care. Now, while I'm talking about the poor here, the principle can also be applied to any of the people in our lives. And, and, and any, specifically, any of the people in our lives who are going through brokenness, right? If there are people in our lives who are going through brokenness, that principle applies to them. Because some of you and some of me, and me, right, when we see people that are in those types of situations in our lives, whether it's in our family or other relationships, what do we do? But we look at them and we say, man, their lives are a mess, in those moments when we see that, do we run towards them with compassion or do we retreat and avoid them? You see, God calls all of us to step into people's brokenness and to help them and to serve them and to do it with dignity. The apostles treated the man with dignity. Secondly, the apostles addressed the man's physical needs first, right? Look at verse 6. 
But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, what Peter and John are doing here is what they saw Jesus do over and over again is that Jesus cared about the person's physical conditions, right? How many times did we see Jesus step in and bring healing? How many times did Jesus, in the context of a whole town, heal everybody that was there? How many times did we see Jesus? Do you remember the time that Jesus stood up and fed the thousands even though he was exhausted? The apostles are doing what they saw Jesus do. Now, I'll be honest here, you and I probably won't always be able to do, I say always because it still does happen, but won't always be able to do what Peter and John did here. We're not just going to be able to see a miraculous healing take place, right? It's not just about how much you want it. It's not just about angling your hands in just the right way or squinting. It's not just about memorizing a phrase and then speaking out that phrase. That's not how it works, right? But we do see the miraculous gift of healing still taking place in a lot of different parts of the world, including the United States, so we should pray for it. But what's important for you and for me to understand here is that Peter and John saw somebody in an under-resourced state, and first thing that they did was they healed them. They did it so they might demonstrate the kingdom power that they had, but they addressed those needs first, right? They didn't proclaim the gospel to them first. They healed the person in the name of Jesus, yes. But they did not proclaim the gospel to them first. You say, well, wait a second, Pastor John. Or John, I guess. I'm just John now. I'm not Pastor John anymore. Wait a second, John. What about verse 16? Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of Saul. Faith in Jesus made this happen. Now, here's what I did when I first read this passage so many years ago. I said, faith in Jesus, it must be the lame beggar's faith. But it's not. Peter's talking about his own faith in the faith of John. You see, what Peter and John are talking about is how the, the gift of healing always works. If you were to go to James chapter 5 and you were to look at what, what it looks like for the church to do this, right, where someone who needs healing, uh, you know, in, in a community, they come to the elders and then the elders pray a prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith, according to John Piper, is a special gift at a specific moment where you have a confidence and assurance that something is going to happen, right? And it's not the, the, it's not the, the hopes and, and, and prayers of the person and receiving the prayer, but it's the prayer of faith that's coming from who? The elders upon him that makes him well. In the same situation here, it's not that they hurry up, you know, sped up, gave the gospel, it's not recorded in here, and then the guy said, oh, in Jesus' name I believe, and then they healed him. That's not what happened. It's Peter and John's faith, and their faith in the name of Jesus that healed this man. And so they met his needs first, now, you and I ought to notice this too about them, right? How did they heal this man? How did they bring about healing to this man? They didn't give him money. Sometimes you and I think when I'm in those types of situations and I'm working with people who are in poverty or in desperate situations, I got to give them money. Or I got I to gotta give money to this church so they do it, right? Or to this ministry so they do it. No, they didn't give him money. What does it say? They gave out of what they had. 
And what did they have? But the power of God moving through them, right? In this moment, the spiritual gifts, a gift of healing was moving through them so that they could do this. Now you and I, I wonder if we remember that every single, every single one of us, when we were saved, guess what? We were given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church and the expansion of the kingdom. And so you have a spiritual gift. Could you give out of that to somebody? You have the gift of mercy, right? Some of you. Could you not exercise the gift of mercy? And maybe you don't have money, but could you sit with somebody and talk with them and listen to them? Could you be a friend to them in that moment? At Centerleaf Boston, we have a couple different initiatives that we run, and one of them is called the Friendship Initiative, and here's how it works. We have several different volunteer leaders who come to the center a couple times a week, and they pack lunches, and they pack snacks, and they pack water bottles, and on cold days, we bring out a coffee cart, and, and then we go out to City Hall Plaza, and we go out to Downtown Crossing, and we go out to the Common, and what we do, and even down to South Station, what we do is we, we hand out sandwiches, we hand out all that stuff and provide it, but that's not all we do. do you know what the people there do is they go out, the teams go out, they go out with the mindset of, I want to build friendships today. And so they don't count how many meals they've handed out. They count how many minutes of conversation they've had. And so when they go out, they sit down with people and listen to people and talk with people and they pull a sandwich out of the bag for themselves and they share a meal together. They have lunch with their new friends. The curb becomes the table, and friendships are built, and that's where eye contact happens, and that's where touch happens, and that's where value is exchanged. And that is so simple. What if we did more of that? Could God utilize us to care for the poor, the desperate, and the vulnerable in our communities, remembering that that's what Jesus prioritized and that's what Jesus calls us to prioritize. I don't know about you, but I need to always remind myself that glorifying God is not just about loving him and enjoying him forever, but it's also about loving my neighbor as myself. I don't know about you, but if I'm cold during the winter, then I'm going to love myself and get myself a jacket, right? If I'm hungry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love myself and get myself some Tasty Burger. If it's a hot summer day, I'm going to love myself and get myself a lemonade. Or if you're a southerner, sweet tea, right? I'm going to do those things. Ought I also to look to my neighbor and say, should I love you the same way? What does the brother of Jesus say, James, but in James chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now this passage is for the church, brothers and sisters, right? But I think the principle applies a little bit broader that we ought to also look at our neighbors, those in our communities, the same way and try to care for them. Peter and John heal a man with what they have to offer, displaying the power of the kingdom, and they do it in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, how do Peter and John act here? How do the apostles act? But the apostles proclaimed the gospel. Look at verse 11. Well, this man, he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Then he shared the gospel. And here's the gospel in a beautiful phrase in verses 19 through 20. Therefore, turn back, uh, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, the people had run to see the evidence of the kingdom power on display, and they saw this, this healed man still holding on to his new friends, and Peter saw that as an opportunity, and he stood up in front of all of them. The crowds had come, and they realized now was the time to tell them not just about what they needed in this temporary life to be healed, but what they needed in the eternal life to be healed in their souls. He shared the gospel with them. And that's what all of us need most. John Piper says it like this, we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Now there's one important thing to notice about how they shared the gospel here that I think is really good for you and for me when we think about doing outreach and when we think about engaging people with the gospel. Notice how they shared the gospel. They only, wait, only did it when God opened up a door, Right? They only did it when God opened up a door. It wasn't until the crowds flocked and there was an open door that Peter and John proclaimed the good news. Now, why do I tell you that? Because too many times what happens is you and I get into this habit of force-feeding the gospel, right? We just, we want to, we got the, 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 the gospel track in our mind or the presentation in our mind or a story in our mind and we just, we just push it on people. We don't wait to build any type of relationship with them. We don't wait to learn anything about them and, and we just, we go into this transactional mode instead of a relational mode, and we just push it on them. And guess what, folks? People have seen that before. They know that. And so it's not uncommon for people in this type of situation to just pray the prayer to get you moving, because they know what this is. You know, several years back when I was doing street outreach in Waltham, I got really excited. I feel like I had the gift of evangelism, so I love to go out and share the gospel with people. So I was out there, and I, and I was really excited to share the gospel with this person. And so I'm out there, and, I, and I'm on my third point, right? And I'm like, I'm revving it, and I'm like just be, you know, just in it. And the, and the guy goes, brother, hold on a second. Do you even know my name? Man, I was cut to the heart. I had just looked at him like a checkbox, like a number. This was a transaction, some record I was going to keep, some score I was going to celebrate. I didn't even care about him. Peter and John understand that about people. They wait till God opens the door, and then they run through, and they proclaim the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times when you and I need to be proactive, and we need to declare the gospel boldly. There are definitely times for that. But I'm saying in general, the way God works, because it's God who saves the Holy Spirit who softens people's, eyes, softens people's hearts and opens their eyes, that we ought to build relationships. We ought to treat people with respect and dignity. And we ought to continue to serve people and love people and care for people, especially those in desperate situations, and then pray and invite God to open up the, that, that door. And then when it happens, we, not, we need to not jump back and try to find someone else to do it, but we need to be prepared to run through and give an answer for everything. And we see that that's what they did here. They served, they cared, they loved, they blessed. Now this passage shows us that part of following God is caring for the poor in a healthy way. And to do it well, we need to treat people with dignity, and we need to meet needs first, and then we need to share the gospel when the door is open. But perhaps the most important thing that you and I cannot miss, and I'll close with this, is this take home. That the reason that you and I, right, 
should care about uh, following Jesus, right, and, and caring for the poor is not just simply to mimic Jesus, right? It's not just simply what I said at the beginning that you and I have to do this because this is what Jesus did, although that's part of it. The reason that you and I, right, ought to care for the lame beggars that we find in our community is because, church, that is us. We are the lame beggars, right? And it's Jesus who by his great mercy turned his gaze towards us and gave us eyes so that we could even look back at him, right? It's Jesus who reached through the barriers, right? And took us by the hand, healing us once to salvation and who continues to heal us every day of the wounds of this world. It's Jesus who made it possible so that we might be able to enter the presence of God. You see, when we recognize our own desperation and how compassionate Christ was and is towards us, then it becomes a joy for us, not a duty or obligation, to serve the vulnerable and the desperate in our community. Who is it that God might be calling you to stop and minister to a bit more today? Maybe for the first time, you're sitting here and you're hearing this and you're realizing, oh, my eyes are open. Suddenly I can see Jesus with clarity. And I'm recognizing that this is who Jesus is, that he cares about me and cares about seeing me healed and restored and cares about seeing my, my soul restored. Maybe that's you today. Well, I encourage you right now, right where you are, reach back up and take the hand of Christ as is extended to you and find healing, the healing you desperately need in your soul forever. Find the healing in the rescue that's in God and Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are such a good and loving and generously kind God. I thank you, God, for your compassion that was poured out to us. I thank you, God, for the fact that you made a way that we might have access to the presence, your presence. And so, God, I pray today, Lord, that we might be a people who live in your kingdom way, that we might be a people who, moved by your compassion upon us, might look and run to opportunities to pour that out, that same thing on others. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, amen.